Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. As we uh, begin our class today, we want to remember June and uh, the struggle she's going through, and if it be your will to place your healing hand upon her, give her comfort and peace to know that regardless of what happens here, that there is an eternal reality that we are uh, heading forward toward, and that you will uh, meet us there soon. We pray that you will be with our classes. We study today, we can understand your kingdom, your methods, and be empowered to, to live as you would have us live in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly today called Creation in the Gospel. And the quarterly is entitled Origins. And the memory text is out of 1 Corinthians 15.22. And it says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And as you hear that, I want you to first think through this, this portion of the first half of the, of the text. What does it mean that in Adam all die? What does it mean that in Adam all die? What are the possibilities? How has it been interpreted? How has it been put out there as the meaning of this text? And I came up with two primary possibilities. One, Adam transgressed the law and was sentenced to death, and all his children are born under a death sentence. Have you heard that? Okay. Or two, Adam actually changed his nature such that without divine intervention, his condition is terminal, and all his children are born with the same terminal condition. Yeah. There's two options. They're not the same, are they? Do you hear those the same? Yeah. No, I don't hear them the same. Pardon? You hear them the same? No. You do? Okay, let's, let me read them again. She hears them about the same. Adam transgressed the law and was sentenced to death, and all his children are born under a death sentence. Yeah. Okay, in other words, the, the, the lawgiver has had a court, he has made a judgment, he has imposed the penalty of death upon them, and he will enforce that penalty, versus they now have a condition which is incompatible with life. So it makes a difference how we see this. Does it make, it, it, depending on how you interpret that text, in Adam all die, and understand why Adam and all his descendants die, will that make a difference on your understanding of what Christ came to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a huge difference on what Christ came to do. If the first option, that Adam was condemned legally and sentenced to death, and all humans are under the legal death sentence imposed by God, then what was it that Christ came to do? Great penalty. If we choose the second option, that Adam actually changed his nature and was born, and we are born out of harmony with the way God originally created life to operate, then what did Christ come to do? Restore us. To restore us, to heal us, to change our nature, yes. To give us back our birthright, because we lost the birthright in the Garden of Eden. And what does birthright mean? He returned back to us the, birth, the, the right to be born as sons and, and daughters of God as the Holy Spirit comes in us. And you see, because birthright can take on a lot of different meaning. Birthright could mean the, um, the privilege of being in harmony with God. It could also mean a legal ownership of property. You know, I mean, it's our birthright. I, 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 am the, I inherit this piece of land as my birthright. So I think what you're meaning is that he gives us the privilege of being recreated back into the way God wanted us to be. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, or, origin of Alexandria, who lived in 185 to 254 CE, was one of the leading Christian thinkers of his day and wrote extensively in the defense of Christianity. In particularly, he wrote uh, in rebuttal of philosophical attacks that in the, in the early church, the Roman Empire was primarily pagan, and they had lots of different uh, plethora of beliefs, and Christianity in the first several hundred years was looked at uh, with, with criticism. It was looked down upon. And um, one of the, the primary reasons they were looked down upon is because the Romans, with their, with their concept of what God is like, and you can imagine the Roman concept of God, could not conceive of the idea that God would actually allow himself to be killed. That was like craziness. God would not come down and humble himself. Uh, when you have a God, God is powerful, and God uses power to control. And one of the philo- phil- um, and this philosophy of Rome is that God was like a Roman emperor, and no intelligent person would believe in a God like Jesus. One of the chief antagonists to Christianity was a guy named Celsus. Uh, who wrote a scathing rebuke of Christianity in, in the, during the second century. His view of, the, of God as sovereign, his view of God was God as sovereign, and that only a fool would believe God would allow himself to be abused. And this is what Celsus wrote. <coughs> it is mere impiousness, therefore, to suggest that the things that were done to Jesus were done to God. Impiousness, craziness. 
that this was done to God. Certain things are, sim- are simply, as a matter of logic, impossible to God. Namely, those things which violate the consistency of his nature. God cannot do less than what it befits God to do, what it is God's nature to do. Even if the prophets had foretold such things about the Son of God, it would have been necessary to say, according to the axiom I have cited, that the prophets were wrong, rather than to believe that God had suffered and died. This, this is, this is a, this, he's not a Christian, but he believes in God. He believes in the pagan view of God. He believes in the Roman view of God. And what he's saying is that, that the prophets of the Old Testament were wrong because they prophesied about the, a God, Isaiah 53, coming to suffer and die. This is not God. He can't go against his sovereign nature. His nature is to rule with power. So what view of God is he presenting? You see that his view of God mirrors very nicely how the Roman Empire governed. This is what it, this is what it did. And for centuries, the church accepted that view of God. Centuries after this, this idea came to infect Christianity. Origen countered Celsius. This is what Origen said. However, although we have boldly and rashly committed these few remarks, this is his book, he's coming to the summation of his book that we countered uh, Celsius' remarks. Uh, in the writing of this book, perhaps we have said nothing significant. But if anyone with the time to examine the Holy Scriptures were to collect texts from all sources and were to give a coherent account of evil, both how it first came to exist and how it is being destroyed, he would see the meaning of Moses and the prophets with regard to Satan has not been dreamt of by Celsus, has not even been dreamt of by Celsus, or by any people who are dragged down by the wicked demon and are drawn away in their souls from God and the right conception of him and his word. See, what he's saying here is it's kind of a, you know, this is old writing and it's not necessarily how we would express it. But what he's saying is that those who hold this, this view of God have, have been drugged down by a demon and don't understand the right conception of God. That's what he just said. They've been drugged down by a demon and failed to understand the right conception of God. So if one believes Celsus, that God rules like a Roman emperor, and tries to fit the Bible teaching, take the Bible and try to make the Bible fit the mold of God as like Celsus's view of God. What do they, what do they teach Christ came to do? Pay the penalty. But if one believes like Origen, that God is like Jesus, a being of love, and refuses to conform their view of God to, to this Roman kind of imperial view of God, then what would they teach Christ came to do? What do you think? Redeem, restore. Restore, heal. So I'm gonna, this is the last quote from Origen. I want to read you this quote from Origen. I think you'll find it's fascinating. Remember, this was written about 185-200 A.D. That's when this was written. We certainly do not deny that free will always will remain in rational natures, but we affirm that the power of the cross of Christ and his death, which he undertook at the end of the ages, is so great that it suffices for the healing and restoration of not only the present and the future, but of past ages. The healing and restoration. Isn't this interesting? You hold the pagan view of a pagan philosopher and you end up with a penal model. The, the, the early Christian apologist, Origen, held a different view and came to a healing model. We see the same thing being played out today. Well, the lesson in our lesson refers to, in the first paragraph there, 1 John 3.8, and it says that, quoting, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What do you understand the works of the devil to be? Jesus came to destroy the works, or the work of the devil. What? Lies that he tells about God. Oh, I like this. So let's, we're going to go through them. So lies. Did Christ come to destroy lies? How? How does he destroy lies? By the truth. Okay. Revealing the truth about what? What, what, what truth did he reveal and what lies were destroyed by that truth? He revealed the true character of God. Okay. God of love. Okay. Number one. Number one is the God of his true character. His character, his father's character. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. What else? 
Well, I was just saying he came to reveal his character, God's character, and Satan's character. And exactly. He, Satan was exposed too, so he revealed his character, the Father's character, Satan's character. Are there other things that were real? This is, this is really, when you think about the cross and what Christ did in his life, there's more revealed. How about, did he achieve his victory by the exercise of a human brain or his divine power? Yeah, he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. James says that divinity cannot be tempted. So, what's that mean? That there was no manufacturer's defect in the creation of humankind. Yeah, he, he proved that there was nothing wrong with man when God made him. Man was perfectly capable of being in harmony with God. Okay. So it wasn't a manufacturer's defect, which would then go back onto God, you see? So he not only revealed his character, revealed Father's character, exposed Satan as a liar and fraud, also revealed that man was completely capable, as God designed him, to live in harmony. And Christ overcame more than Adam had to overcome. How about, did he reveal this? That if you, through his life and how he interacted with those around him and what those interacting with him did, did it reveal that when you keep the rules but don't have love in your heart, you become God's enemy? If you look through the history of Israel, and you look through the history of their whole, their whole people since the time of, of their exodus from Egypt, when had they ever come to a point that they actually were following the transcript God gave them at Sinai? Their whole history was repetitive, idolatry, rebellion, until the time Christ came. This is the time the unlooking universe is looking at and said, finally, they're keeping the transcript. They're following the rules. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Now we've got a godly people on earth. It's time for Christ to come because they're ready for him. And he came to that people who were keeping the, the rules, paying a double tithe, eating all the right foods, worshiping on the right days. And what did he do? And what did they do to him? So what is revealed? What other truth is revealed here? External conformity to rules does not result in friendship with God. We keep the rules for the wrong reasons, we become his enemy. Okay, so one of the things Christ came to defeat was the lies of Satan. What else did he come to destroy? Destroy the works of Satan. One is his lies. What else? Well, Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. A murderer from the beginning. He's the author of... Death. Get your mind around this. Solidify this. Whenever you think of the source of death, who should you think of? Satan. Satan. What do most Christians teach? Who do most Christians teach is the source of death? God has to kill. He has to punish. He has to destroy. It's a lie. Satan is a murderer from the beginning. He is the source of death. Christ came, it says in in Timothy, to destroy death. By his death, he destroyed death and brought life immortality to light. So Christ destroyed death. This is one of the things Satan brought. He brought lies, he brought death. How did he destroy death? Next question. How did he destroy death? Well, it depends. See, we go back to that Celsus model, that Roman view, an imperial authority ruling over and inflicting punishment. Well, then how did he destroy death? Well, Adam sinned. He was under a death sentence. Christ paid a legal death sentence who would be imposed by God. So how did he destroy death? By paying his father the penalty. It's all pagan. It's all distorted. No. Adam changed his condition. Adam was no longer operating in harmony with how life was built to operate. How did Christ destroy death? Developing a healing remedy for his eternal. There you go. By developing a healing remedy. By, in his humanity, putting God's methods, principles, the protocols upon which life is built, back into the species human. This is how he destroyed death. We'll we'll expand on this more as the lesson goes out. And then there's one other thing he destroyed. According to scripture, Satan's work was to efface the image of God in man and put Satan's image where God should be. He talks about becoming a a synagogue of Satan, or that Satan sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God in Thessalonians. Which temple would that be? The temple of our hearts and minds. He wants mankind to look like Satan in character. That's what Satan's trying to do. Christ came and destroyed the infection of satanic principles in the heart of man, in his own humanity, and, be, and says in Hebrews 5.8, once he was made perfect, he becomes the source of salvation, or became the source of salvation for all who will obey him. So Christ eradicated and perfected humanity back into God's original idea. 
And at the bottom of the lesson, I thought it was very nice in the, in the Sabbath lesson there. It says, did you notice, uh, did you guys notice that the lesson says that sin separates us from God and causes death? This was very nicely said. Very nicely said. All right, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, as we all know so well, the first humans, perfect beings created in the image of God, fell into sin and brought death. They had been warned and they understood what they had been told. Eve even repeated to the serpent what God had said, yet they sinned anyway. At times, we, like Eve, are led into sin by deceit, while at other times, like Adam, we sin intentionally. Either way, we are sinners guilty of transgressing God's law. Why did they sin? What caused them to sin? What is sin? Maybe you should say, what is sin? I, I, selfishness, I think, is a, a very nice way to describe it. Can you describe it another way? Separation from God. Separation from God results from sin, right? I mean, that, it, it does that. And I think to choose to separate from ourselves from God would also be an act of sin. But then sinning itself results in separating from God. Yeah. Tells us it's lawlessness. Lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, what does that mean? Lovelessness. Lovelessness, which is selfishness, because the law, is, the law of God is what? The law of love, which is the protocols upon which life is built. So lawlessness is choosing to separate yourself from the design protocols upon which God built, built life. That's what sin is. This, this very, the metaphor I like to use because it's most concrete, most easy to see, but there's many others, is one of the laws of giving is breathing. You give away carbon dioxide, plants give oxygen to you, and you can break that law and be selfish and put a plastic bag over your head and keep all your carbon dioxide. <laughs> but it is a law, and this law cannot be changed to meet the sinner in his sin. And if you break the law... And tie a plastic bag over your head. Does God hold a court, have a trial, find you guilty, and execute you? No. no. The wages of sin, the result of lawlessness, of being outside the law, is, is very, very straightforward. This is why Christ came to put humanity back in harmony with, with the law of life. Yes. I, I, I love this analogy because the law of respiration doesn't care if you're tricked into putting a bag over your head. If you do it voluntarily, or if someone else does it for you, the law of respiration still functions as a law. And this is exactly how, this is well said, this is exactly how God's law works. It's like sometimes I talk to, to patients in marital difficulty, and uh, there's something going on that's dysfunctional, harmful in the marriage, and one of them will say, but I know they don't mean to do it. And I, and I say, okay, so you guys are up on your roof roofing together, and your spouse picks you up and throws you off, or they bend over to pick something up and bump you off, is gravity going to care? No. Gravity is going to do it. Once, once you're thrown off the roof, bumped off the roof, you're going down and you're going to get the same injuries. See, what's happening is injurious. It's damaging. It's destructive. Whether it's done purposeful or, or accidental, it still results in damage and destruction. Now, the, the intentional portion can go back to the point whether I can trust to get on the roof with them again, whether I should stay in the marriage or not. But the, the behavior still has to stop. And we've talked before, and I'll just run through it very quickly. How did this law of love get broken? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. If you're in a loving marriage and somebody tells you a lie that your spouse is cheating, but they're not, but you believe the lie. You now believe your spouse is cheating. What happens to love and trust? It's broken. Lies believe. Satan is the father of lies. He lied about God. They believed him. Love and trust got broken. Broken love and trust results in fear, and selfishness. I don't trust you anymore. I think you're cheating on me, so I've got to go get money out of the bank account. I'm not going to sleep with you. You might bring me a disease. I've got to watch my back because you're not watching it for me. Fear and selfishness is known in the world today as survival of the fittest, watching out for number one. And that drive acts, causes us to create or do acts of sin. This is a terminal condition. Without intervention, we continue to act selfishly. We live outside the way God built life to, to operate, and, and it results in death. Now listen to this, second paragraph. This is after Adam Eve sinned now, in the garden, God held a trial, an investigative judgment even. The purpose of the trial was not so that God could learn the facts. He already knew them. The purpose was instead to give the couple an opportunity to accept responsibility for their actions, the first step toward repentance and restoration. God asked them, 
what, the, what had happened, and they confessed, although reluctantly. Though they, though they were guilty and though their sin brought immediate consequences, the first gospel promise was given to them in Eden. Did God hold a trial? Was this, which lens, which law lens is this statement looking through? I, you, I really I'm gonna, I want you guys to learn to look through the two lenses. There's that imposed imperial Roman construct, God puts laws upon and must punish. There is the law upon which life is built construct. Which lens is this looking through? Imperial. This is the imperial construct. This is Roman. And when I tell you, when you hear this kind of stuff, the people who write it reveal the lens that they operate through. And it's not the godly lens. This was not a trial. What happened here when God said, Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? This is not a trial. This was a manifestation of grace. A reaching out to reconcile, a gentle intervention to bring restoration. Now think this through. What had Adam and Eve just done? Don't say take the fruit. They did something before that. It's much more important. They believed what? They believed lie about who? And so who did they conceive of God to be now? A friend? Someone gentle? Someone they could trust? Why were they hiding? They're believing lies about God. So the first thing God does is begin to behave in ways to demonstrate he's not the judge who's coming to punish them. He's not holding an investigation. He didn't say, Adam, did you eat of the fruit? He said, Adam, where are you? Adam said, I hid because I was afraid because I was naked. And then he said, who told you you were naked? Think of the implication. Think it through. Who's, who, who, what are the options here? Who told you, Adam? There's me and there's you. And there's Eve. Okay, there's three of us here. Who t- did you hear it coming from me? Did you hear me condemning you? Am I, did you hear me pointing out your nakedness and your defect? You didn't hear me doing it. And so what we see here is not an investigation, not a judgment, but God is beginning to reveal his character. He is not the source of our condemnation. And of course, John chapter 3, verse 16, we all know that one. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But what about verse 17 said? He sent his son in the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. He's not condemning us. And so what we see here is just the opposite. When you, one lens, we got a judging, punitive, punishing, investigating God who's going to hold you accountable and make you pay. Another lens, a loving God who knows you're sick and he wants to take away your fear of him so he can heal you. They're just opposites. Last paragraph. It says, death came in the most unexpected way. Instead of the immediate death of Adam and Eve, one or more of the animals died. Imagine Adam's feelings. The animal died, perhaps in his place as a sacrifice. It was the first time that Adam had seen death The animal was skinned and the tunic was fashioned and the skin was placed over Adam's body and so forth and so on and so on. What do you think about what you hear? What lens is this looking through? It doesn't harmonize what Scripture tells us. Can someone provide me a Bible reference, a Scripture that actually says an animal was killed. It's not there. Yeah, you won't find it. It's not there. Not, this, not to provide them clothing. Nope. What you will find, everything in this paragraph, other than the fact that skins were provided, is read into the paragraph. It's supposition. It's surmised. It's imagined. It's fantasy. It is not from the Bible. God provided skins, but nowhere in Scripture does it say God killed an animal. That's all read in from a finite human mind who accepted Satan versions of God's law, believed that God must be the cosmic executioner, and therefore God killed the animals. And since the animals represent Jesus in the sacrifice, therefore God killed Jesus at the cross. This is all false. Think think it through. Which is harder for God to do? Create a living animal or to create an animal skin? Which is harder for God to do? Create a living animal or to create animal skin? Now, given all, think through, think through what you know about your Bibles. 
given all the explicit and detailed and particular and extensive descriptions of animal sacrifices through the Old Testament, including Abel's sacrifice, do you really think it was an oversight that the Bible did not include God killing an animal? If, in fact, he did. It wasn't included because he didn't do it. But when we already have this presupposition, then we actually take something like this and we draw conclusions that aren't there. If we stick to the Bible, then God provided them animal skins, but God did not kill the animals. God provided his son as our savior, but God did not kill his son at the cross. Are you sick of this world? Tired of the... So literally, Adam committed the first death. But damn. Well, it's a... We don't know who killed the first animal. I guess the assumption would be if Adam, if Adam went out and did sacrifices before Abel, the first one we have recorded in Scripture is Abel's. But we can make an assumption that Adam maybe carried some sacrifices out before Abel was born and old enough new adult. Probably so. Um, yes? But like the lesson mentions, why didn't God clothe them with fig leaves or something else? He clothed them with animal skin. Yes. I mean, that must be significant. It is significant. The animal was symbolic of Christ, and so the animal skin would represent what Christ is coming to do. But interestingly enough, we don't have any record where God killed the animal. So Christ does, does come as our Savior, and we are covered, if you will, metaphorically, by his robe of righteousness, which is symbolic of the skin. But we don't find God killing his son in order to provide us that. We forgot, find God providing his son in order to do that. Yes. In the sanctuary set up, the individual sinner had to slay the lamb. That's exactly right. The priest did not slay the lamb for the sin offering. The sinner who committed sins slayed the lamb. So it would be very inconsistent in that system for then God to be the one slaying the lamb, unless you have this imposed view. Are you longing for the Lord to come? Why do you think he hasn't yet come? We were told as an organization that he could have come 100 years ago. But he hasn't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a hypothesis. I'm going to give you my current understanding of why he's not here yet. Jesus said, when the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. What kingdom? The gospel of what kingdom? He says the gospel of the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom of Rome? The kingdom of imposed law? Imperial authority? Punishing deity? Appeasement from an angry, wrathful God? That kingdom? Or the kingdom of love? as God created his universe to operate on the law of love, who sent his son to heal and restore the universe back into harmony with himself. Which gospel message do you think has gone to the world? Do you think the world knows this view of God that we're talking about here today? No, this is why he's waiting. He's waiting for a people to stand up and say, that is not what God is like. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in which people need to make a judgment about who God is has come. It's time. Give him glory. Show what he is really like. Lest you think I make all of this up. Lest you think I make all of this up and I've just got a paranoia going in my head and this isn't really what's happening. Let me read to you some quotations. This is out of Seventh-day Adventist Belief, 27 Belief, page 111. For a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Jesus Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice required that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus on the sinner. In this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. Who do you hear is the source of death in this description? God's the cosmic executioner. This is pagan. This is in our book. This is in Christianity. Why has the Lord not come? Because he's called a people to present the truth about him. How about this? This is out of Ministry Magazine. Who publishes Ministry Magazine? Yes, we do. February 27. February 2007. Why did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or lethal injection? 
none of these have been retracted. None of these have been, uh, we've, ma- we've made a mistake. How about this? This is out of At- Wor- Adventist World Review, December 2007. One of the fundamental problems of the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered a violation of justice. <coughs> Who's the source of death here in this view? Is this making you comfortable? Are you wanting to say, I love this God they're describing here? Is it warming? Are you getting more trust and confidence in him? I'll read one more. This is the Adult Sabbath School Quarterly from 2011. The Hebrew wording of both Leviticus 9.24 and 10.2 was the same. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed. Consumed what? In the first case, the offering. In the other, the sinners. What a powerful representation of the plan of salvation. At the cross, the fire from God, the wrath of God, consumed the offering, and that was Jesus. Really? What Bible does he read? Do you ever see fire coming down from heaven and consuming Christ at the cross, like it did at, uh, in Elijah's day? Did that happen? In fact, did we get just the opposite? My God, my God, why have you? In fact, the scripture says darkness covered for a period of time during the crucifixion. There was darkness there. Yes, in the back. Uh, Eric says, this idea that God executed his son is based on Isaiah 53.10, which is mistranslated in all translations. The Hebrew says the opposite. Yes, I think he's exactly right. It's, it's based on that. That's, that's a, that's, it's based on that and many internalized and uh, accepted pagan god constructs coming out of imperial Rome. It's both. Um, but listen to the prophecy. You mentioned Isaiah 53. If you go back six verses in Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 53, 4, here's a prophecy of the Old Testament. God is prophesying the suffering Savior's coming. He's going to sacrifice himself. He's going to take our infirmities, our iniquities upon himself for our healing, for our restoration. By his stripes we are Healed, it says in Isaiah 53. And notice what verse 4 says that we will do. This is what it says. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. No, it tells exactly we are going to misunderstand and accuse God of killing his son. And look what we've done. How can Christ return when this lie about God is permeating the world? When our own church presents these ugly distortions about its character and when our leaders show no interest in changing the message. And in fact, when you confront them on the message, they don't want you to fellowship with them anymore. (laughs) Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph. All through the Bible, we find that God's response to human sinfulness is redemptive in nature and motivated by genuine unselfish love. He would have been fully justified in giving Adam and Eve up to Satan's destructive power. After all, they had made their choice, but God knew that Adam and Eve did not understand the full meaning of what they had done, and he determined to give them an opportunity to become better informed and to be able to choose again. First off, I think that the beginning of this is very well said. That God's action to sinfulness is redemptive and motivated by genuine unselfish love. That's exactly right. That's well said right there. And I'm going to point that out because sometimes people feel I'm a little critical of the quarterly. Sometimes maybe I am. But they say some things that are right. This is, this is very well said right here. What about the idea that Adam and Eve didn't understand fully or didn't have full understanding of, of, of it says right here, they didn't understand, um, didn't have full, they didn't understand the full meaning of what they had done. I just thought a little contrast to Sunday, the first paragraph, what it said. They had been warned and they understood what they had been told. That was uh, two days before. Now, they don't understand what they've been told. So, which was it? We've got two options here. They understood, they didn't understand. Well, this is out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 761 and 762. And I'm going I'm to read a little section. We'll talk about it, read a little section. I think you'll notice a powerful progression of what was described. This is a message that we, as a group, should take forward. And if we went with the, what you're about to read here, which was written over 100 years ago, would we have anything like what I read in those other documents being promoted? See the contrast. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. That justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. 
And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. First pause. Who's, whose argument is this right now being articulated? This is Satan's argument. This is Satan's allegation. This is Satan's view of God. What kind of law is Satan describing here? This is an imposed law. This is a dictatorial view. If you've got a rule, you've got to punish. If you don't punish, there's no justice. This is when you have arbitrary laws by an imposer of law, that's what you've got to do. This is Satan's view of God's law. It's what he's alleging. Do you know that I've had pastors, when I presented this to them, go, well, Satan didn't always lie. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I've had pastors from local churches within five miles of where we stand say that in this particular case, he was just quoting the truth. Let's keep going. When we broke, when men broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. It was proved he declared that the law could not be obeyed. Man could not be forgiven because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven. Satan claimed that the human race must forever be shut out of God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. Again, what kind of law is being described by Satan? This is all Satan's arguments. If we stop right here, and I don't read any further, Just this paragraph alone. Do you realize that many Christians don't have a problem with what I just read? They only get confused because it's attributed to Satan saying it. That's all. But this is the theology that most people abide by. And so when they they think about Satan saying this, it causes a little tension until they do the little construct, well, Satan, you know, he he can use truth and twist it, and so this is a piece of truth he's going to use later. And they try to make it out to be true. Keep going. But even as a sinner, remember the question, did did they understand, not understand? But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. I'm going to pause again. Why not? If the problem is a legal problem, he broke the rules, legal legal uh, law, why couldn't Christ pay a legal penalty for him and the fallen angels? Are we saying that God loved man enough to die for him, but he didn't love angels enough to die for them? If we have an imposed law and it's just a matter of uh, a paid penalty, then what's the deal here? You know what most uh, pastors that I present this idea to say? Well, his death was, he would have died for the angels too, but they wouldn't have accepted it. You mean they wouldn't have had a stamp on their foot? Right, they would have rejected, just like, 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 like humans that, that, that are lost in the end. He died for them, but they don't accept it. Well, the, the angels that went with Satan and, and Lucifer just wouldn't have accepted it, but he would have died for them. Interesting, isn't it? So, one view, looking through the legal lens, we have to say, what's going on with God that he would die for man but not die for angels, right? Why couldn't save him? Why was this, uh, this, this no more God could do for him if it's a legal problem? But if it's a protocol upon which life is built problem, can a being so abuse their faculties that they destroy within themselves the ability to respond to love and truth? Ah. And what is it that Paul says leads us to repentance in Romans? The kindness or goodness of God leads us to repentance. Say, Lucifer had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him as to no other created being was given a manifestation of God's character of love. Despite all this, he chose to follow his own independent selfish will. There was nothing more God could do because there was no more God could do to persuade him. He rejected all the evidence. There was no more truth. He understood. He lived in it. He bathed in the love of God's presence. And he rejected it and won in selfishness instead. He was in a terminal state. Keep continuing on. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. Did you notice it didn't say, this is very powerful, we're thinking, think the two lenses we're looking through. That first paragraph I read, if we just left it there, we're thinking, oh, okay, can't be forgiven, everything has to be punished, and all this kind of stuff. Now we're going, 
wait a minute. There was hope for him. There was hope in a legal payment stamped by his account. That's not what it said. For him, there was hope in the knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. Continuing on. Though through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men. Okay, here we get it. Here we get at it now. But mercy does not set aside justice. The law reveals the attributes of God's character and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. Pause. Why? uh, Why can't the law be changed to meet man in his fallen condition? Two lenses. We have an imposed view. Make up rules, speed limit, all these kinds of things. Impose law by an imposed dictator who imposes penalties. Versus, we have the law upon which life is built to operate view. Now, why can't the law be changed to meet man in his condition? Yes? Uh, it's the way life operates is just back to your respiration. Exactly. It can't be changed because that's the way things are. You see, when you read this other view... This, when you look through this lens, the law can't be changed to meet man's condition, you get answers, and it can't be changed. Why? Because it's an affront to God's authority. The imposed law could be changed. Of course it could be. But they can't allow for it because he's, well, he's perfect and he wouldn't write any, there's no defects in the law. And as the sovereign, he's not going to change a thing that he's already written perfect. You see, it's, it's about authority. It's about sovereignty. It's about that Roman imperialism. It's not simply because this is how life operates, and it can't be changed because if you change the law, suddenly life doesn't exist anymore. Has Satan changed? Has Satan changed? His own nature, yes. He changed significantly from a being operating on love to a being who operates on fear and selfishness. Yeah. So keep continuing on. Um, Not one jot or tittle could be changed to meet man's fallen condition. God did not change his law but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's legal payment, for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, putting man back in harmony with God. Continuing on, the law requires, this is a good one. The law, you should type that if you have the, the Ellen, if you want to know what the history of our church was and what, what the, the ideas we were built upon and how far afield those quotes have gone, type in the search engine if you got the CD-ROM quote, the law requires, unquote, and see what the law requires. Listen, to, what do you think the law requires? Penalty. She says penalty. The law requires, no, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. Why? Pause. Why does the law require righteous life, a perfect character? How about if it said this? The law requires breathing, respiration, continued um, you know, oxygenation. What, if, if it said that, would you go, well, that's very confusing to me. What, what an arbitrary law. <laughs> no, the law requires righteousness. The righteous life of perfect character because this is how life was built to operate. Yes. Well, anything else hurts. It destroys. It um, damages other people. So unless you have love and live with love, you're hurting someone. And not only hurting someone else, who else are you hurting? There you go. Exactly right. So this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, now get your mind around what I'm about to say here, because if you're under this imposed model, you're going to get, you're going to really get shattered here. If you're under the, 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 the uh, natural law model, it's going to make a lot of sense. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Wait a minute. I thought that we, it requires a legal payment for the remission of sins. That we must have a blood payment. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we must have that blood payment. And without that payment, God can't remit our sins. It's that legal model. Go back over to your natural law model. 
Somebody, we, we read today about somebody who's struggling with cancer. She's going to the doctor. She's, I've been told, getting chemo. What does she want that cancer to do? Go into remission. What does remission mean? It means that the cancerous cells remit back to their precancerous healthy state. That's what remission is. They're no longer cancerous. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, our characters do not remit back to the way God originally designed mankind and Adam to be. Christ came to transform, regenerate, heal, cleanse, renew, rebuild, write the law on the heart and mind, circumcise the heart uh, with the Holy Spirit, take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. He came for sinfulness in mankind to remit. And so when we accept the life of Christ, Notice how it goes. I'll just read this paragraph. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they receive remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer of Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Do you see the complete contrast between this penal-imposed lie that has taken Christianity by force and the actual healing truth? That the early church, I read, for, read to you today from Origen, and I've read from others, uh, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus before, before Origen. The early church fathers taught that Christ came to heal and restore. And then came the philosophers and Constantine's conversion and the idea that on earth the Roman government is an imitation of how God governs his universe. And Christianity still, even after the Reformation, is reacting and practicing that distortion of God's law in the way we see how God runs his universe. Do you see the difference between the two law constructs and what Christ came to do in two different views? Which do you like better? Which, 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 is, which is more consistent with the totality of Scripture and the character of God? All right, Wednesday's lesson. Last paragraph, Wednesday's lesson. On the cross, Christ accepted the curse of sin in our behalf. This was a change in his standing with the Father. I'm not going to read more because we're running out of time. This change in standing, what lens, law lens, are they looking through? What do you think it means, this change in standing? If one accepts the imposed law view, then Christ had a legal status change or standing from innocent son to guilty sinner who must be executed. We read those quotes earlier on the cross to resurrected innocent son. That's what happened. It was innocent son, guilty sinner must be punished. No, he took the sins upon himself. He became guilty sinner. We have to punish him now. And then ultimately victorious and innocent son again. This is what they're saying when they say changing standing before the father. It's actually bizarre. It's very, think it through. It's bizarre. If one understands the truth that God's law is the law of love, then one sees that Christ is the means whereby God achieves his goal of what? What's his goal? What's God's goal in sending Christ? God had a goal. God had a mission. God had a plan. What was his goal? Restoration. Restoration. And so Christ becomes the remedy, the means whereby God heals this race and eradicates sin from the universe. Christ's standing never changed. He was the remedy before the cross. He was the remedy at the cross. He's the remedy after the cross. He is God's remedy for sin. There's no change in standing. This is out of a... uh, Document. What's WB stand for? Anybody remember the abbreviation? Workers' Bulletin. Workers' Bulletin, September 9, 1902. Again, how far afield we've drifted from where we're supposed to be as an organization. Listen to this quote. This is from Ellen White. As a remedy for the terrible consequences into which selfishness led the human race, God gave his only begotten son to die for mankind. How could he have given more? In this gift, he gave himself I and my father are one, said Christ. By the gift of his son, God made it possible for man to be redeemed and restored to oneness with him. Are we, are we, are, what are we hearing? Which lens are we coming through? 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the great principle that actuates unfallen beings. With amazement, the angels behold the indifference that those who have light and knowledge manifest toward a world unsaved. The heavenly hosts are filled with an intense desire to work through human agencies to restore them in man the image of God. They are ready and waiting to do this work. The combined power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy, Ge- and the Holy Ghost is pledged to uplift man from his fallen state. Every attribute, every power of divinity has been placed at the command of those who unite with the Savior in winning men to God. Oh, that all would appreciate the truth as it is in Jesus. Oh, that all would love God in return for the love wherein he has loved them. Sin has extinguished the love of God. Sin has extinguished the love that God placed in man's heart. The work of the church is to rekindle this love. Wow. Can we rekindle the love by presenting an imposing, arbitrary God who chooses a cross rather than lethal injection and an electric chair to kill his son? You see the problem we have. It's terrible. I want to jump to Friday's lesson. I think you'll find this interesting. I'm going to look at question number four, and we backtrack and do some other things. Question number four. Critics of Christianity will often argue that Jesus knew beforehand that though he would die, he would be resurrected to life. Thus they ask, what is the big deal about his death when he knew it would only be temporary? And they ask you to look at a couple of places here to help answer this question. How do you answer the question? Or, if you don't want to give the answer that you would give, what answers have you heard in the past to that question? He knew he was going to rise again before he came from earth. It's not that big a deal. He knew he was going to come, die, and rise again. What is the answer they give? Do you know? Yes. I think it must have been horrible what Christ experienced. He was sinless. He never experienced sin in his body. And now he was there in Gethsemane, and all the sins of the whole world were placed on him. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. Wait, time out. I've got to, I've got to clarify. You, you use some nice language. We've heard it before. I've heard it my whole life. It's written in places. What do you mean the sins of the world were placed upon him? I mean, my sins. He died as me. So that every act of sin, past, present, and future, is placed upon Christ at the cross? Well, he, I don't know how God did it. Well, does that mean then that if Hitler and Stalin, who killed millions of people, shortening their life so that they couldn't commit decades of sin actually reduce the suffering of Christ on the cross because there's less sin put on him? No, but, I mean... I mean, if, if we're going to say that the suffering is caused by all the sins of all the people, if we have less sin that people commit, then he has less suffering, right? How about we commit abortions? More abortions, millions and millions of people never commit sin, so there's less sin on Christ, we've reduced his suffering. There's a problem with this theory. This is back to that penal model. See, the reason this theory comes along is because... They have this view, under this imposed legal model, every act of sin must be punished. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. We just read that a few minutes ago. This is Satan's view. Sin has to be punished. It's not God's view. Sinners have to be healed. Sinners have to be healed. Sin does not have to be punished. That's a lie. Think about it this way. Think through the medical model, through the natural law model. You have a child who's sick, and they have all types of symptoms of their sickness. Nausea, vomiting, fever. Do we have to punish them or do we have to heal them? Now, Christ, if he's going to be the remedy, as it says in Isaiah, took upon him our infirmities, our iniquities, our condition he took upon himself. And he suffered under the weight of that condition in order to cure it. Do you see the difference or does that confuse people? It's a huge difference. The only hard part for me is... How does the blood apply? I mean, you know, he could have died without blood. Would he have then done it? Okay. (laughs) When Jesus said in John 6, unless you drink my flesh, drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part with me. How does the blood apply? You answer that question, you'll answer your question. When he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, if you don't do it, you have no part with me. Ah. So it's his life. So how does his life apply? We just read it. We, live for him. we just read it. Let me read it again. Okay, let me read it again. 
The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Blood. Right there. That's blood. His life. This he offers as a free gift to all who will uh, accept it. It says, more than this, he imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Partaking of the character of Christ is the application of the perfect righteousness of Christ that he developed. It's the blood. Blood is a metaphor. That's it. Could it have been achieved without his death? Of course not. Why? Because our condition was defective with selfishness. And on the cross, the two antagonistic principles in Christ's brain battled it out. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, Scripture says. And in James it says, we are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Right? Not just external, somebody out there saying, hey, here's some cocaine, have some. No, internal temptation, and the primary root internal drive is? Save self. And in Gethsemane, in Gethsemane, what do we see? Christ is overcome with intense human emotions that tempt him to do what? What's his temptation? He was tempted from internal to himself. Save yourself. Save yourself. But every time the temptation came, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down or give it freely. So in Christ, those two principles, God's law of self-sacrificial love, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend, is battling with the infection of Satan's kingdom, me first, me first, protect self. And in Christ, he gives his life freely to destroy the infection of selfishness. This is why he rose again. Now I want to come back to this question. It ties right into this question. I want to, I want to really nail this down for you guys. If we believe the healing model, shouldn't Christ have understood beforehand what was required of him? what he would need to achieve and what the outcome would be? If we understand the, in heaven, man's sick, here defective, they're dying. Hey, this is what's needed to fix them. This is what I will have to accomplish in order to set it right, to restore it. Wouldn't he need to know that beforehand? Or did he come down here just a hope and a guess? Maybe. It might work out. We'll give it a try, see what happens. Or did he have a clear understanding as the creator of what was needed to recreate and heal? Meaning he knew. That when he won in his humanity the victory over selfishness, he knew he would rise again. And you see this through this whole ministry on earth. He told his disciples repetitively, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to rise again. On the third day, sign of Jonah, I'm going to rise again. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. If we hold to the imposed model, though, penal model, well, this isn't fair. Because in in that model, the penalty for sin is eternal death. I'm going to finish this point because we're running out of time. The penalty is, is, is eternal death. This is what they think. And that penalty has to be paid, but they've got a conflict because any thinking person realizes Christ didn't die eternally. And so then they create this other, this other fabrication. He thought he was going to die eternally. And this is where this question then causes them trouble. He thought he was going to die eternally. And because he thought he was going to die eternally, it felt to him like it was eternal. Then that's the same thing as dying eternally. Really, we have somebody on death row here in the, in the state of Tennessee, and they go into the, in the death chamber where they're going to get lethal injection, and they believe they're going to die, and we have an anesthesiologist come in and put them to sleep. We wake them up four hours later. They paid their penalty to decide they died because they thought they were going to die. That works for you. It doesn't work. It's broken. It's twisted. It's a twisted leap of logic. But just as a person, think this through, who has a, and we'll make it very simple, a simple analogy, parables have their limitations, but we'll do a little parable, has a dislocated finger. Has a dislocated finger, and it needs to be reduced. Maybe it's a child, even. They have uh, fear. They have anxiety. They have apprehension. They experience pain. They are tempted to pull back. They don't need to have a crystal ball to see the future to realize once it's reduced, it will be better. They don't need to have a special divine intervention to understand the outcome will be once it's reduced. They know that, hey, my finger's going to work again once it's reduced. They know what the outcome will be. And by faith, they choose to go through the suffering for the outcome. My view is that Christ understood exactly what he would accomplish here. That he took our condition. 
He lived that. He knew it was going to be awful. He knew the pain involved, but he knew that his victory would achieve the healing of humanity and he would rise again. But the joy set before him. This was this whole question and this whole conflict is based when you're looking through this legal imposed model. But when you understand the natural law model, does it not make sense to you the creator who created us knew what he would have to accomplish to recreate us? And that's what he came to do. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such incredible lengths to reach us. Oh, Lord, this world is dark through misunderstanding about you. We want you to come, and we know you're waiting for a group of us to get it together, to come to know the truth of you and your kingdom of love, to be able to articulate and present that effectively in this world. We ask that you will help us understand you, to know you, and to give us the gifts and abilities to articulate this message clearly that we can wake this church up and this world up, that you can come again. We pray in your holy name. Amen.